Welcome to Talking Business Now. I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thank you for joining us. Have you ever promoted someone in your organization who has stellar performance to a senior position? Or maybe you've hired someone who has an outstanding track record in another organization. And then that person failed, failed big time in the new role. Why does this happen in companies all across America every day? Our guest on this episode of Talking Business Now is Ron Carucci. Ron has a new book out called Rising to Power. It's the result of a groundbreaking 10-year study on executive transition. And it comes to some surprising conclusions about why so many executives fail and on how fast they fail. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. We're talking business now with Ron Carucci. Ron is the co-founder and managing partner at Navalent. Ron works with CEOs and executives who want to achieve transformational change for their organizations, their leaders, and their industries. In this episode of Talking Business Now, Ron talks with us about his book, Rising to Power, which he co-authored with Eric Hansen. The book is a result of a groundbreaking 10-year study on executive transition in which Ron came to some surprising conclusions on why so many executives fail and on how fast they fail. We'll talk to Ron about why that happens and how your organization can beat the odds. Welcome, Ron. Kelly, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now let's let's get right to that book and and some of the uh, conclusions that you came to. The results of your study showed that an astonishing fifty percent of leaders fail, and not only do they fail, they do it within their first eighteen months. Why does that happen? Gosh, Kelly, that's that's actually what led us to even start the study in the first place, and some of them fail even sooner. We had been working with a young, promising executive at one of our clients where we had done this massive transformational project, and at the end of which, he had distinguished himself. He had already been labeled as you know high potential and all the great labels we put on people we, we see promise in. So when he was given a bigger role, nobody was surprised. And uh, nine months later, he called to check in. Our, our work had finished, and I assumed he was calling to say hello, and I was going to hear about all the great things he had accomplished, and he was calling to tell me he had been fired. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and that was devastating to hear. And then two hours later, the CEO called to also let me know he'd been let go. And I more than subtly inferring that some of his failure was mine because I hadn't better prepared him for that role. And that was devastating to hear. So I asked that we might come back in and sniff around. I, I couldn't understand how we could have so badly misjudged his potential. Well, that little investigation of what happened in that organization is what led us to our 10-year study, only to find that it, it in fact, he was just one more statistic that, in fact, this is common practice, that many executives seen in the middle as with enormous promise become disasters at the top. And we uncovered dozens of landmines 
that organizations put in their way as they ascend to bigger roles. Um, uh, and, and tragically, waste careers, waste opportunities, you know, relocate families and uproot them and ruin them. It's a, hard, a, a level of carnage we shouldn't be accepting. Of course, recruiters love it because it's an annuity for them. Exactly. But, <laughs> but, but short of that, it's terrible, and it's so unnecessary. All of the obstacles these leaders face are avoidable. Let's talk about some of those obstacles. We obviously can't go into all of those today, but give us a few of the biggies. Well, he's, and he's a great one. Right from the very beginning, we set people up to fail. We still use, whether people are coming in from outside the organization to take bigger roles or we're elevating them within our organization, we still use the two least reliable devices to make our decisions, the resume and the interview. Mm. Uh, but still we use them. And in those interviews, we say things like, oh my gosh, look at these great apps you've built. That's the technology we need here. Or, wow, you've turned around two supply chains. That's exactly what we need here. Or, my gosh, look at these phenomenal brands you've helped create. We need branding here. Uh, And in those statements, we sow the seeds of failure. Because what we're saying to them is, you have a formula. You have a recipe. We want you to bring that formula here. So what happens? We've, seen, we've all seen the movie, right? The executive shows up and starts slapping on their formula, mindlessly devoid of context. Mm-hmm. And all the organization resists, the harder they slap. And then they become contemptuous. They get frustrated, and they start saying things like, how have you people made money here? You didn't tell me it was this bad. And the organization begins to slowly back away. Well, so, so this, yeah, this formula that you talk about, it, it just seems like common sense that every situation would be different, that there would be a different dynamic at work, whether it's with the people, whether it's with uh, what got it to the place that needs to be turned around to begin with. I mean, just all sorts of different factors. The market may be different. So why do executives or recruiters or both, why do they continue to use these kinds of outdated tools and why do they continue to think that the way they're going about this will work when they've seen probably in many cases, you know, they've been burned? Well, so I, I, so to, to give credit where credit is due, we, we are seeing improvement in selection. We're seeing behavioral interviews. We're seeing uh, selection devices other than the interview. We're seeing work product reviews. We're seeing other devices used to test for compatibility and test for uh, success in a particular role. So th- that's the good news. But I think executives, when they arrive, um, who have been probably high achievers and are used to being gratified by the impact they can have, especially if they're changing altitudes, right? They're used to much more immediate gratification by impact that's sooner. And they, no one tells them that at higher levels, your, your, your time horizon is much longer. Your time to impact is more ambiguous. Um, and, and leaders, when you're new, you want to prove yourself, right? So what executive doesn't enter a new situation saying, oh, I'm just going to spend the first three months learning. I'm going to go on a listening tour and talk. And they have all the good intentions. And then some senior leader or CEO says, so where's your 90-day plan? And out goes the learning and in come the consultants and the task forces and the kicking up dust and creating the appearance of change. And we get on this need to sort of make our mark. Um, and we forget that uh, we have to be contextually intelligent. You know, leaders who succeeded in those, in those situations knew that the, the organization had as much to change in them as they had to change in it. They knew they had to adapt. They knew that there was no plug and play to whatever experience or success they had. They had to adapt it. Yeah. Um, but for many leaders, anxiety 
of, of a new role, the pressure to perform, the pressure to contribute, whether that pressure is self-imposed or imposed by those around them, uh, becomes too great. Some people get very dictator-like and authoritarian uh, under that kind of stress. So talk to us about the power that comes with these new positions. You know, interestingly enough, when we isolated the dimension of power in our study, we did expect to find people reaching for power grabs and becoming more self-interested and self-serving and more exerting of their wills more directively. And those people certainly were there, but that was not the greatest abuse of power. Um, Interesting. What was? Actually, the greatest abuse of power was the abandonment of it. People were too afraid to use the power, too um, uh, hesitant to use the power that came with their role, so they set it down. And instead, worked hard to please people, worked hard to uh, buy people's loyalty, doled out way too many yeses, um, and uh, let, let power go. They're too afraid of being seen as power mongers, too afraid of being seen as um, not listening or not empowering at the expense of using the power that comes with the role they, they ascended to and asserting their will on the organization. Leaders who succeeded uh, in, the, in their ascent knew that sometimes leadership means disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. It means saying no to the organization. It means disappointing people so that greater ideas can prevail. It means not saying yes to every great idea that comes along to keep the organization's focus narrowed and, and focused on a greater good. Um, but for for some leaders, that was too difficult to do. Right. And, and I, I've heard you say before that until you can tell me what you're saying no to, you have no strategy. So so you're really big on that, focusing and and getting that clarity so that you can start working and, and get moving forward as opposed to saying yes to everything and not making any difference and frustrating yourself and everybody else. Well, and, and part, of the, part of what kicks that into gear, Kelly, is leaders arrive to these higher altitudes and no one says to them, hey, just so you know, your life plays out on a jumbotron now. There's a megaphone strapped to your mouth 24-7 and everything you do and say is amplified. You can't twitch your eyebrow without somebody attaching meaning to it. And that level of exposure and visibility freezes people. And so they become so self-absorbed in how others perceive them, that they work to put on, um, the, they, they work to sort of make sure that the perception that others have of them is positive. What can an organization do then in order to prepare these newly appointed executives for their new positions and for success, not just personal success, but for the organizations as well? What are some of those things? Start early. <laughs> um, yeah, so waiting until someone's got their first vice president role or even senior director role is too late. The, the great news about the study wasn't so much uncovering all the landmines that derail executive assent, but we actually were able to uncover the things that those that so, – so if half of the leaders were failing, we wanted to know, well, what are the other half doing? If, if they're sticking to landing and thriving at higher altitudes, how are they doing it? And we actually were able to uncover four very consistent patterns – uh, across the research that set those executives apart. Context. You can learn to read the tea leaves around you. You can be curious. You can uh, understand how to adapt. The second was breadth. These leaders understood that at, at senior level levels of an organization, you have to build bridges, right? The organization is already um, fragmented. There are already border wars at the seams, mm -hmm. silos, and your job is to 
connect people. Your job is to, is to create cohesion for the organization. If you grew up in, a, in one of those silos, finance, you, you no longer have the luxury of seeing the world through economic lenses. If you grew up through marketing, you no longer have the world seeing the world through a, a consumer lens. You have to see the whole, not just the sum of the parts. Third, these understood how to make choices. They could make hard decisions. They could say no. They knew how to narrow focus. They didn't say yes to everything. And the last was connection. These leaders understood that um, they had to have deep trust-based relationships with bosses, peers, and direct reports. And specifically what the successful leaders did was they didn't prioritize their network relationships based on what they could get. They prioritized their relationships on how they could contribute and how they could make others successful. You know, and every company has these people, right? These are the ones everybody wants to be around. They're the leaders you know you're going to learn from and be developed by. They're the people that if you're around them, you know your life gets better. So breadth, context, choice, connection for hard muscles to build, but buildable uh, and better to build them early. You've spent a lot of time working with startups. Today, we've been talking mostly about established organizations that are bringing in a new leader, promoting someone from within the ranks or bringing somebody in from the outside. But let's go in with startups. You know, they're notorious for being great really big on ideas, but they're lacking when it comes to that seasoned leadership. So what's your best advice for an executive who's leading their organization from, as you put it, startup to grown up? Yeah. So first of all, um, it's never too early to have a strategy. So many, whenever I walk into the VC community or someone who's gotten their Series B money or you know, they're ready to start their scaling work. I ask the question, so what's your strategy? And I get all kinds of counterfeits. I get the business plan they use to get their funding, or I get the mission statement, or some set of values, or I get the, the product quota. You know, Costco call, President order, that's the strategy. And I, I say, that's all very interesting, but tell me who you are. Tell me why somebody would choose you over the other person up the street doing the same work. Tell me what sets you apart competitively. Tell me what capabilities you're investing in to be better out than anybody else. Um, and they can't answer it. They haven't made those choices uh, around who their fundamental identity is to the marketplace. And so many entrepreneurs, because that means saying no, right? It means saying no to some consumers and customers and segments to say yes to the ones you want to own and dominate. And that means narrowing. So once you've set that strategic identity in place, then you can make investment choices. So often, uh, entrepreneurs, they grow fast, but they don't scale. They they add body counts, but they're not truly scaling to efficiency because they don't understand that not all work is created equally, right? The, the work that you do to set yourself apart competitively, that's your competitive work. It is, a, it is about 15% of the work in your organization, and it's the most special stuff that you do that if you put a dollar into that work, five dollars comes in the door. There's the enabling work that supports it, the, 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 mm-hmm. the direct activities and processes that drive that competitive work, and that's another 15% of your work, and then about 60% of the work you do is necessary work. Keeps you out of jail, keeps you in compliance. You don't have to be better at, the, better at it than anybody else, but you have to do it. And the problem is you have to quarantine the competitive work from the necessary work. Because once you start mixing both of those things, the competitive work always gets short shrift, right? Because the necessary work is what has my hair on fire. It's more immediate, so I do that. And entrepreneurs don't understand you have to design your organization to separate that work. <laughs> And then lastly, you have to lead. Most entrepreneurs don't understand that you, leadership is something you also scale. You have to have leaders who can take on more responsibility, lead teams. You, you know, the, 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 the biggest disruption in many startups is when they have to layer over the startup team and bring in layers of leaders uh, under, under the senior executives. And the, the mitosis, just like you know, cells in our body, the work has mitosis in our organization. It should scale down, not up. 
Um, but but you get to the place where the seams are ripping as you go on from 30 people to 100 people or 200 people, and now it's just mayhem. And so you have to you insert or impose this levels of management to try and bring order to that chaos. But unfortunately, when you bring in outsiders, you just you, you create this compression in the organization. You squash it, and now you're not scaling. Now you're just you know bolting on duct tape to try and keep things on the rails. One of the things you said that was really uh, insightful was that you're growing, but you're not scaling. I think so many entrepreneurs don't make that distinction in their head. They're adding employees, they might be adding uh, markets, they might be adding products, but if they're not increasing their revenue uh, to keep up with that, then all bets are off. In fact, you'd probably be betting on the failure uh, shortly down the road. So so that's a very key thing. And you as a leader have to lead the company through that, that very managed growth. So lot, lots of good things here today, Ron. Where can people get a copy of your book, Rising to Power? Gosh, a couple of places. So, so, certainly you can find it on Amazon. But if you want to find out more about the research, we have a free executive summary of the book. You can download, you can come to visit us at navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. Uh, we've got uh, a free quarterly magazine you, you can have. We've got great blogs, tons of videos on the research and on the book. Um, we also have a, um, a free ebook. If you're if you're leading some kind of transformational change within your organization, we have a free ebook for you called Leading Transformation. You can get it at napolit.com/transformation as well. So come visit us and hang out. Yeah, and you can also you've you've done some TED talks and you write blogs and all of that is available on your website as well. Correct? That's correct. As we leave today, I have to ask you, what is the one thing that business leaders should be talking business now about in 2019? Just one thing, if you had to pick it. Uh, honesty. Telling the truth. Why is that? We actually just ha- I have a new piece of research out just out on HBR last week. Uh, we took a 15-year study to find out what it is that predicts whether or not people will lie in organizations. And it turns out that it's not just individual character issues. Uh, that there are systemic factors that will cause people to lie to you or not or withhold the truth from you. So if if you don't want a bunch of yes people around you, um, be figuring out now how it is your organization is allowing people or encouraging people to tell the truth. And don't assume just because uh, you're getting no, no bad news is good news because it's not necessarily the case. Very true. Great insights, Ron. Thank you again for joining us today. Kelly, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We appreciate the support of our sponsor, Interobang Solutions, providing writing, editing, and publishing services. Give them a call at 913-220-4251 or visit interobangsolutions.com. And thank you for tuning in today. Please be sure to join us for the next episode of Talking Business Now. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.